from the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. This is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to episode four. My name is Kanyisile Mbongwa. Um, that's my birth name. My ancestral spiritual name is Kamalok Twasa, Kamale Tongo, Umtala Wamanzi Langa. Dingumbongo Katulumbu is Sunyamas Nagam Timkulo. Dingumalum Tungumbulaso at Mundem Yang and Gendaba. Dingumatondo. Tobia Sematengi, Numilaso Cotenu Tokelumbo. Dingumbatano Sandu Tenuchol. Diamana Bagua Hatebe, Um Timkulu, Omashabata, Bagua's Tolle, Umundise. Diamano Amira Uyansa Ushamako Ushango no Oya. Diamanom Vel Utandiwe no Okun City Togoza Badabadal. I work with curing and caring. And those are my guidelines or blueprints into how I think about my practice as a curator from a perspective of cure and care. I never look at the work I curate as a representation of something. I always think of it as the thing that speaks of a continuation of a lived experience. The methods I also work with to ask the, the people I work with, who sometimes are artists and sometimes are not, is also to like tap into so much of who they are with the hopes that, or the intention that, that the work will break something real and heal it at the same time. And so that we understand that the breaking and the healing are always going hand in hand. In relation to changing the city to their heart's desire, black people's lives have not begun in Cape Town. This city is not historically made to their heart's desires. If anything, it is the opposite. The city is made The excerpt you're hearing now is taken from a performative lecture that Kanyesilambongwa presented as part of the Vasiki Creative Citizens Collective, delivered in the style of an evangelist or preacher. The work was featured at the ICA's Third Space Symposium in 2016. That if there is no space, nowhere to go, it is the right and the duty of the displaced to imagine, to imagine the horizon and to create a space. In other words, Today, Kanyesile Mbongwa identifies principally as a curator. Most recently, she curated the 2020 Stellenbosch Triennale, a multidisciplinary exhibition of contemporary artworks from across Africa. She no longer makes or performs work as an artist. And in fact, she strongly resists the term performance and the notion of black bodies as performing bodies, as you'll hear a bit later. But this work that she presented four years ago, which challenged the concept in post-colonial theory of the third space, and posited instead the idea of a revolutionary and emancipatory fourth space, gives voice to an area of interest that would become central to Mbongo's practice as artist, researcher, and now curator. The politics and the possibilities of space, and specifically reconceptualizing the narrow alleyways known as Ikhanga, between homes or shacks in township spaces. Streets, concrete slabs, taxi rank, duck spaces, underbridges are all reconstituted within the fourth space that grounds everything on lived experiences as such. Mbongwa writes in her master's thesis, 
Ikhanga is the only space of possibility within racially zoned areas. A route that bypasses limits exists beyond the grips of both colonialism and apartheid. It is one of the few spaces we can claim for radical black imagination. In today's episode, we move between town and township to delve into Kanisina Bongo's thinking, writing, curating and art making on space and radical black imagination. Along the way, we'll hear from the academics who supervised Mbongo's master's thesis at the University of Cape Town, artist and art historian Namusa Makubu and ICA director Jay Pather. The fact that South Africa has not gone beyond the spatial arrangements that separated races and separated class. You know, the, 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 there's, there's, a, there's a particular tragedy that she's highlighting. But the way that she's doing it is she's showing us that it's actually in the normal everyday things that we've come to accept. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very powerful work. You know, when the, the theory emerged, you know, it, it, it is that moment when a student presents a thesis point that you're, yeah, it really explodes the brain because I'd ne- never heard anyone speak about these spaces with that level of depth and, and an understanding of the resilience with which people remake these tiny, tiny material spaces into spaces of recreation where the, the Black body, the Black imagination is given room and space to, to dream and to be human. But we begin in the recording studio with Mbongwa recalling an important early work she made with Gugulective, a collective that Mbongwa and nine other young artists from Guguletu and Langa formed in 2006. Their body of work is renowned in South African public art for having pushed against the often elitist mainstream art scene to set up spaces of creative and intellectual exchange on the periphery. It was me transitioning from using words as a poet, because that was my first entry into the creative space, being a a performative poet, and translating my concept from text, this poem I had written, to a physical iteration where it required the full use of my body without speaking, without a defined conceptual framework of like mango groove we know what mango groove about we know like we know the dance we know the costumes but now what I'm doing not everyone knows about like I have to figure out how my physical movements my bodily movements translate what I'm talking about and the work was about knowledge and scarcity of transaction of knowledge between young and old we had done this whole installation that it looked, literally looked like a cake where we put all these burnt books that we had found on top of each other, building a tower in the center and then putting, demarcating a space using chains, like really old rusted chains. And then in the center, having a pole, a burnt pole, long, and then these stacks of books, you know, the first square is bigger and smaller, da, 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 like how you'd imagine a cake. And... You know, that the knowledge is there, our knowledge, indigenous knowledge, ancient knowledge, but it's burned somehow. This was the installation and the work I was doing was trying to access this and trying to also give birth to a 
vision and imagination that would somehow manifest if I can't, if I, if I die before I can reach the center and find some of the, the residue of what is left of, of this knowledge. And leaping from purely spoken word, and now I had to say everything without sound accompanying me. There was no sound. And how do you carry people and hold them with you through that process of you, you know, peeling the onion of what you're doing? And I think then I already knew that this is not a performance for me because I was just like, well, what I know about performance art feels limited to describe and articulate what I'm doing here as a black queer person, young person in the township. I was like, I'm looking at these theories and thinkers and, and every, you know, and people I respect, people who write amazing stuff, but I'm like, I, I see a limitedness in the vocabulary and in English in itself in, in speaking about the denial of love and freedom for black people. So I'm not performing here. I'm searching for something. There's something. And back then I didn't have the word demonstration or to demonstrate that I'm demonstrating a black lived experience. This is how I speak of work that is done by black people who use their bodies. I want to talk about Kudenja. So it was first presented at the 2017 Live Art Festival. I think that was the first iteration of it, or first public iteration. And then it was again at the Live Art Network Africa in 2018 in a slightly expanded form. I know from conversations with Jay Pather, who curated the Live Art Festival, that initially you wanted to set Kudenja in Guguletu. Tell me about the shift that you had to make conceptually to relocate this work from a township space to a university campus space. I mean, there were numerous things. First, I had to make space. I had to create space in a place that didn't know how to create space for people like me, that keeps out people who come from townships who look a certain way. The architecture of the university is part of the institutional and systematic culture that reproduces itself, that has found ways to safeguard itself. It's in its own loop. And if you like me, you're waiting on the sidelines as it's looping to find a moment to slip in. And when you do, there are many cuts you're going to experience because every time you have to go slip through the same loop, in that loop you're like in the loop you know like you know when you have a a a mosquito electric mosquito thing and you hear the mosquito go the system is saying to someone who's a cleaner or a security guard and your child shall remain and their child's child shall remain so these are all the things you know i had to think about and where in this building would this place be where and that was, that was the first challenge. The site that Mbongwa eventually chose for this work was a storeroom on UCT's hidden campus, which is located in the basement of the colonial-looking Ritchie building and filled with furniture and props that are used for student productions. On a summer's evening in 2017, on the final night of the ICA Live Art Festival, audience members walked down the steps to this basement storeroom and were handed bottles of black label beer to drink as they moved through the confined space of the work. 
The demonstration has the feel of a kind of temporary installation that one has stumbled across underground, or a memory lodged in the subconscious that we are briefly permitted to uncover. The first iteration of Kudanja unfolded within this single room, and I revisited the space with Dr. Namusa Makubu, who you heard from at the top of the episode. I mean, I think the first thing to mention is, is particularly the choice of the space. It's underground, just below street level, in the Ritchie building, kind of like in the belly of it. But also you sort of stuck with all these objects. Right now, as we're looking at it, it's got all this light. Um, but for those who are experiencing um, the demonstration, the space is darkened. It feels alienating as well because you're not sure where to go. You have to navigate in between the furniture. And you are aided only by very minimal light coming from the the fairy lights coming from the videos. And you get the sense that she was trying to stage something that happens or would be encountered in a black township, which then of course she gets us to kind of question what kinds of spaces black townships are. In the darkness that Makubu describes, audience members or witnesses as Mbongwa sees them view the work from a narrow pathway demarcated around the edge of the room with fairy lights. A pathway with only one exit and entry point, a kind of ikhanga that we must navigate at night. This was part of her master's project, which was about ikhanga. And she was thinking about it both as a physical space that's in between houses, but she was also thinking about the passageway as a metaphorical space, that is, the transportation of laborers from the township into the city centre, the different forms of understanding and articulating how space shapes the way that we think about ourselves, our identities, our race, our gender. Basically, the fact that space is the stuff of our politics. Then I was like, how do I create this space without it being an insult to me? and where I come from. Third, how do I create the space without it being a romanticized notion or an experience for those who do then enter the space when we have created it? So these are all the things that were going through my head. As witnesses to the work move past and alongside each other in the darkness, negotiating their limited vantage point, the continuous action that unfolds in the center of the room is carried out by Mbongwa and what appear to be two fellow workers or employees. They are dressed smartly in black and white collared shirts, like waiters or bartenders, and throughout the piece they throw beer crates to one another and then stack them smoothly and efficiently, the way that a chain of builders might pass bricks from one to the next to assemble a wall. Here's Namusa Makubu again. She begin to see the three characters throwing the alcohol crates to each other. And as they throw them, of course, Mbonga collects them and puts them behind her and sort of creates this wall, but then breaks it down again. There's something quite interesting about the place of the body within the sort of mechanized action of packing and unpacking crates. There's so many people who become dehumanized through the processes of, of mechanic, menial labor in the everyday space, right? So it's in the building of houses, the construction of buildings in the city. That labor goes unnoticed. You know, when we talk about violence, we're not always talking about someone hitting someone. We're talking about the systemic violence through the kinds of labor that, that, that become racialized. 
Kudanger has a prominent, almost cacophonous soundscape. The repetitive thudding of the crates, thrown, caught and stacked on top of one another, is set against the voice of Abby Lincoln singing Max Roach's 1960 song, Tears for Johannesburg. There are a number of TV screens dotted around the room. One screen plays an interview with Pastor Tlolas Kosana. On another, we watch Simpiwe Dana performing her song, Inkwenkwezi. There's also a clip from a local TV program called Jovijo, and a screen showing a documentary about train surfing. Train surfing is when a person would stand on top of the train while it's in motion and stand like they're on a surfboard. And then every time there's an um, electric line coming, they would bend over like, yeah, lean back. And of course, people lose their legs, arms, they get electrocuted, they die. It's an extreme sport that is not recognized as an extreme sport because it's been done by black people. If white people were doing that, you know, I'm sure Red Bull would be on it as they are on bikes. And, you know, one day someone decides I'm going to go on, on top and then learns while on the moving train, has no actual protective gear, no shoes, no jacket, like nothing to protect them, except their wit and their fastness and like knowing never to hesitate, have a plan executed, you have to be sharp. And that one second of not being sharp can cost you your life. Do you understand why it can't be performance? If this person gets fried by an electric wire, they get fried and that's it. And so it was important for me to have that uh, documentary of five minutes to have this conversation about being black in the world in itself is an extreme sport being black and queer oh my god <laughs> like being black and poor oh my god <laughs> you know but being born black is an extreme sport i'm Blaira. i'm 22 years old and i'm a train surfer sometimes uh you know as a person living on earth like uh you have troubles and stuff so that's the way of expression, you know, like uh, 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 you want to take out the anger instead of uh, beating someone and, you know, robbing them. So uh, you just expressing the anger. No one speaks about it as a radical imagination of black young people to take themselves out. I mean, when I was listening to some of the the videos and the, the people that were interviewed who had died, who, you know, maybe were survived or have a cut arm and and they talk about complete freedom and wanting to escape from dire poverty or dire depression because of their blackness and seeking something, an imagination or hope to grasp something real, to feel alive. That for me was also about the, the extreme imagination and the, the lengths that black young people will go through because of the dire situations we find ourselves in. Live and experience the heightenedness of being alive, or die heading towards it. That's train surfing. And then Simpiwe Dana's song, Nkwenkwezi, speaks about a black child that is a star and that has to shine in this darkness. Like, like so much darkness, but here you are. Nkwenkwezi, keep on shining because you are the seed of the flower that will grow. This idea of getting out also comes up. The sort of ambiguity or interplay between do you stay and become proud or do you get out because the spaces were never created for a full human life. This uh, series that was on SAPC1 
Jovijo. It, it's in the it's in the township, and it's centered on using Bansula Bansula dance as a way out of um, the informal settlements and everything that comes with the violence of being in the township, which resonates with what I've been exploring and experimenting with Ikhanga, imagining yourself through the creative practice and imagining yourself and manifesting yourself through it. And then I, I just created a, what do you call that screen? A shh screen. Just, yeah, the shh. The noise, there's a sort of the, the transmission noise um, of, of radios. It sort of kind of creates this, makes, turns the space into this kind of uh, um, disorienting space to, to create a situation where people don't have that sense of control is to get people to understand what township spaces were created for. When we were working in the space and like having to first get the people I was working with accustomed to one particular sound and then add, add, and them experiencing their bodies move a certain way because of the addition of sounds and then because of all the sounds together all the time and how they had to keep their sequence in the sequence of what's happening. And, and most of the time, that's also what happens in the township. Everything else is happening and you have to keep focus amongst all, whatever's happening, be awake. As audience members leave cool danger behind them, Abby Lincoln's powerful voice keeps singing out. Crates continue to be thrown, and the interviews and static noise and TV clips play over and over. The train surfers keep surfing. All the sounds and images come together to form a kind of counterloop to the closed circuit of privilege and prejudice that Mbongwa had to reckon with in realizing the work. Because I mean, if you're thinking of something that's looping, you know, it's looping so fast, it's been going at a, a pace that you're like, okay, when is a moment? When is the moment? And whatever moment you find, even if you slip through, there'll be cuts. <sighs> because over and over, you have to transcend something about your black experience, your black queer experience, your, your black poor experience. Every time you walk through the gate, you have to transcend it. Professor Jay Pather recalls that the stark image of fairy lights in Kudenja seemed to encapsulate so much of what Mbongwa explores in her writing and theorizing about the ambiguity of township spaces. The, the fairy lights were, were, quite, were, were quite something because it, she, she's constantly talking about these spaces as not just spaces of abjection, but they are spaces that, as much as they produce nightmares, they produce dreams, they produce... Um, desire, they produce uh, plans for the future. People have plans and, and it speaks to this awkward uh, acknowledgement of uh, resilience. It, it, is a, it, is such a, it is a tragedy that this resilience is being tried to the extent that it is. This idea that Ikhanga holds both possibility and tragedy is best understood in the context where it first emerged from Bongwa. And so we went there. On the morning of our interview, Mbongwa drove us the 18 kilometers that separate the township of Kuguletu from Cape Town city centre. We're on the end two, um, coming from town, heading to Ekuguletu, where I grew up, or most of my life. I mean, I grew up around, in most townships in Cape Town, actually. 
but Guguletu is where my big homestead is, the grounding home, Kayakulu. Mbongwa was six months pregnant when we spoke, and much of our discussion on the way to Gugs revolved around motherhood, her own childhood, and the influence of her grandmother. One of the most fascinating things growing up as a black child is that, so if you're born in the 80s, chances are you had like an awesome grandmother who was able to hold homesteads, all the different homesteads, who was able to bring everyone together. When she passes on, cracks start appearing and you don't even know where these cracks are coming from. And I think that's partly also because no one else was actually groomed to be the person to hold the families together. Um, that's what I noticed, you know, and, and working as a network of a family, because I think that's how they could achieve so much. Um, the that generation. Yeah, so I was very close. I grew up close to my Swati grandmother. I grew up close to my Sutu grandmother. I grew up close. Yeah. Can you tell me about your grandmother's tap dancing? <laughs> she was so dope. So my grandmother was this phenomenal woman who raised me, who was a nurse by profession, but also was a tap dancer. And most of her youth life, was a tap dance and so when I was born she started teaching me tap dancing and giving me piano lessons. She was so full of life but I feel like she didn't live her life because she was just raising her kids and then her and then me you know um, because she also died quite young. She used to tell me stories about growing up um, in rural KZN and traveling into the city for tap dancing but also Ukita you know she was very um, it was, yeah, I was raised in a very Zulu way, even though I grew up in a predominantly Kosa and Soto environment. And she would like tell me all these stories about the kind of music they used to listen to. So like BB King, I got introduced because of my grandmother, you know, and but always she was like, she would have this enormous glow. Come fit, I'm fit. She would have this enormous glow on her face, like I gave you time to go sis. She, you know, like this amazing glow of like so much full of life that was quite rare. And her feet, the way her feet would start moving as she was trying to demonstrate what it felt like for her tap dancing. And how she always found that place as a, a space of freedom where when she was moving her feet or a gita, there was just this other being you know, where it didn't matter, nothing mattered, but like that moment of that kind of freedom of being able to move your body in that way. Now we're approaching like Mannenberg or Hederfeld area, and then we're gonna turn left into Gooks. We had come to Gogoletu to visit a public space that is of particular importance to Mbongo's work, the Ikhanga that runs alongside her mother's home on NY112 Street. The alleyway is about 50 metres long and one and a half or maybe two metres in width. A narrow passage that connects NY112 Street with NY141 Street. Its walls are formed by grey slabs of concrete on Mbongwa's mother's side and on the other side by the yellowish-green wall of her neighbours. There are tags of different kinds marking the sides of the Ikhanga, some territorial and others celebratory signed with koki pen or spray paint. It was a spring day when we spoke, but grey skied and gusty, the wind funneling through the khanga in short bursts. 
In between answers to my questions, Mbongoa greeted passers-by with Tokoza, a greeting that is also an acknowledgement of one's lineage, ancestors who have passed and descendants who are still to come. This is like in 2007, six or seven. And I remember when we were doing the one here, and then people started looking because they thought someone had died, but we were referencing that, you know, like all the, because I had, have experienced, Togoza, Togoza, but I've experiences of so many people who had passed away here, who were killed here, so many people who, who were raped or robbed, you know. Um, you mean in Gogoleti? Like just here, just this, this, this space. But then other memories... Long before Mbongwa conducted her master's research, the Ikhanga between NY 112 and 141 streets was the site of a number of public interventions carried out by Gugulective. Looking down at the tarred surface of the alleyway, we could still see the faded paint and written inscriptions from one of the collective's demonstrations more than a decade before. Uh, so here's like, they know not what they do, rest in peace when passageways become cemeteries. Your souls will, your souls will be. You know, we're trying to just remember the young, gifted and black. So how the collective works is that like, we're always in support of all our individual interest and pursuing that. And so for me, because, you know, almost in every household I've grown up in, I was close to an alleyway. And there were like this, this anomaly space, this space that we're just seen as inherently dangerous but like I knew I had a, this other experience you know like I knew that I had my first kiss with a with a girl in an alleyway underneath like a, a, a you know a post lab which at the time the word queer was not part of my vocabulary and so and I knew of other experiences of like how we gathered in, in alleyways like oh and so the boys that used to gather at the entrances so I, and I was just like, there's something else here to, to be explored. It's a, it's a form of a public space, like almost everyone passes through an alleyway, you know, where there's a shortcut or trying to rush somewhere. It's just this passage, you know, it's, a, it's, it's leading you somewhere. My thesis or my work in general, or my thesis specifically, is about radical black imagination and where we can manifest that as geographical locations. Also like how do we construct or start having conversations about how to build an ethic of radical black self-love. And this is not to say that black people have been devoid of love all this time, but there is a shift in radical love because we are talking about love as a political tool, a critical interaction with self and your environment and your family, where love is not seen as a um, just as an emotional state or way of being, but seen actually as a vehicle, as a driving force, as a mechanism that can assist us in navigating not only ourselves, but the spaces that we, we are in. Tell me how, I mean, you've been alluding to it already, but explain to me how Township Alleyways sit at the center of radical imagination for you. I mean, because for, for me, they're this space that is the only space when you look at the, the theoretical architecture of townships from an apartheid perspective. But even actually before that, these in-between spaces that are not like um, 
train wheel tracks or highways or bridges right that were put there as specifically as buffers you know everything i read could not pinpoint like why alleyways were necessary like even when you look at town mapping and you know urban mapping and so these are spaces that are not really conceptualizing the psyche of all the oppression and so they represent a possibility a a transitional space and most people who escaped or survived um, being chased by the, 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 the police during apartheid, these were the, 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 the maps they were using. It's, this place is not just for violence. And how I got to everything I'm doing, everything is that I, when I was a little bit younger, like in my early 20s, I just, I didn't understand and got so frustrated when I noticed that every four years in Cooks, every four years there's gangsters. And I wanted to understand why. Why are there gangsters every four years? So all the work that I did in my thesis is part of wanting to understand why is there this type of violence? And so one of the things I found out then was that every four years there are boys between the ages of 16 and 21 negotiating the manhood outside of traditional lines. Yeah, and it just led me to, to really unearth crevices of township architecture, crevices of space, how space demarcates us as bodies, as living beings, and our, our psyche. It's, it's really at the core of it, it's like my work is Togozan, Togoza, Togoza. It's, it's wanting to be alive as a black person because I, I feel and think and know and have encountered that. For as long as I can remember, we've been negotiating ways of dying. We have been told that like, you know, you're here, you're born to work so that you can die. You can't leave anything behind. Colonialism, apartheid, robbed us of all our legacies. All of it, all of it, from a spiritual, traditional, cultural, everything. And when somebody does that, is them saying to you, you're not allowed to be alive. And so what does it mean when a black person says, I want to live? Not as a theoretical idea, but as an imagination, as a manifestation, and like what that opens up for you, like I want to be here. I want to, us to get to a space where we are having a different conversations about being here and not one that's always negotiating like violence and death because we're black, because we're black and queer, because we're black, um, and non-binary because we're black and poor and it's it's so sad you know it's because sometimes it's it's almost like the world views black people as black bodies that only know violence and so it's okay you can withstand any form of violence and anything which is not true and so the work was also about that showing the possibility of love that we have and love that we've given showing the possibility of um dreaming that I am my mother's imagination that manifested, even when the time was not allowing black women to imagine life, but we were. So how do we do that on a collective level? Healing the collective wound. For me, that's the radicalness that I'm yearning for, I'm searching for, that I know exists in, in the crevices of townships. Togoza, 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 togoza. How do you make this argument about alleyways as a, as a metaphor for, the, for this potential and power and possibility without romanticizing the township? 
I think people who've lived in the township, we have no romantic notion of what this place is. Only people who come from the outside. We know. I, I've lived here. I continue to live here because my family lives here. I have a real notion of what this place is. You know, both beautiful and ugly, both happy and sad, both vibrant in its colors and its sound, and also vibrant in how people die both in, 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 in celebration and jubilee and in mourning. And so I do not romanticize the township at all. I don't need to. The work I'm doing is wanting to heal ourselves here. And wanting to heal can never be a romantic notion, but rather a real thing that you know is a necessity because the wound has gone on for far too long. I think it's always the observer who comes from the outside who will talk to you about like, oh, there's a sense of community in townships. There's a sense of togetherness. It's like, yes, the circumstances we found ourselves in required a certain um, resilience. And we understood that. And then we created the systems that allowed for that kind of resilience. You're romanticizing it because, you know, you can live in the comfort of your home. You don't have to think about daily survival. And so for you, it's a romantic notion that I can go next door and, and borrow some sugar or an onion or water or hot water or a tea bag. When for me, it's a matter of survival. Here I'm dealing with a lived experience, a reality that I've breathed through and continue to. In the car on the way back to town, I was interested to know about a 2016 work Mbongwa curated that put her theorizing around Ikhanga into practice. The work was a collaboration in which the band Urban Village performed in two alleyways in Soweto, first in Dobsonville and then in a much narrower Ikhanga in Orlando East, playing alongside pansula dancers and a tap dancer who moved around and in between the passers-by. Here Mbongwa recalls how the first of these works unfolded. So Dobsonville, at the end we started, we worked in from one entrance until maybe halfway in the alleyway and had the band against the, the one fencing, the one wall, the one side of the wall, so that people could walk through and also could sit and enjoy. And then the dancers were there, the tap dancer was in the middle of the alleyway dancing and at some point the 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 two guys were climbed up <laughs> the, the 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 wall of the yard and started dancing on top of it with the the, the edge of the wall it was amazing <laughs> um, because it was like talking to so many other stuff you know about fencing security and people running away from police you know like it, it, it was referencing so many things um, and then we had kids who were coming from school who just suddenly stopped. We had um, people were just crossing and then were asking what's happening here, why is this happening? And then one magical, like I found it probably the most magical, there were about three or four uh, uh, men, uh, young men who were um, amatwasa, who were all dressed in their regalia, you know, and and they passed at um, 
Tubati was singing a particular song called Ubaba. The, the song of Ubaba is about like the man that leaves, the man that stays, like just talking about the black man and what black men can be to, to, to black families. And then, you know, to have those four men walk past at that, you know, young men, that exact moment, but also men, walk, young men walking with the ancestral who are on this very particular path, you know. And if we were not there and we did not do this, we would have not encountered that, that magical moment. Yeah, so that was that. And then the other one, it was so small that we couldn't fit the, 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 the drum kit. So we had to put the drum kit on top of a drain um, at the edge of the alleyway. I also spoke to Urban Village band member Kalani and Chali about what sticks in his mind most vividly from this collaborative work. You really have to negotiate for space. So we have to negotiate for space with the people so they can still pass. And they have to negotiate with us if they can still pass. So it was a, a, a much closer interaction for me. You know, I'm a drummer, so I'm usually at the back end of anything. But now I'm playing and all around me are people moving in and around me. So this time around, uh, you're getting a backstage pass. The person who's singing is right here next to you. And you actually hear him from the speakers, but you're actually seeing him right here as well. I remember at, at, at one point <laughs> when someone's passing, you know, the, the, the back of, of some of the guy playing Lerato uh, playing guitar would have to be at a, against the fence so that someone can pass, you know, and someone would have to be against a wall where someone can pass. So it shows you how small the passage is where you would not be able to fit in two people shoulder to shoulder. And, and I think that the, the guys that have been it had even a greater time or the dancers, because also them, they would really dance around the people, and, and then people, so you never even show if is this really happening, because I saw these people dancing, and now they're dancing around me, so they've made me part of what they're doing as well. It is very interesting, the fact that just the space, you know, can make such a huge difference on how you implement your performance. The idea is that, like, we should not obstruct movement. You know, at, at any at any time, we should not obstruct movement at all. Um, and then there, even you know, people were passing, people were standing, watching, people were dancing, people were asking questions. Like we didn't know this band existed. Who are these people? They from here, really? This kind of music? Oh, you know. So like people having um, an interesting experience because we dared to put something in a public space, in a township, in an alleyway, in an in a space maybe some people wouldn't think it's like it's worth worth that you know as someone who who works in, in as a curator and looks at as at curating as a form of cure and care working in public spaces always presents the very fascinating encounters with people and an interaction and an intersection of stories and encounters where you know, normally organizations think that they, they're the ones bringing something to a space, which is usually actually the other way around. You walk out of there, you walk away from that space, having gained enormous amount of magical encounters because of the people who are just crossing through the space. It's the intersection of what you bring and all the other elements that come into it. And, and people saying, yes, yes, I hear you. Yes, I see you. Yes, I believe in what you're doing.
your move from being in your works to curating works and seeing yourself as a curator, not as a performance artist, which was never a label that rang true for you, but it was one that for a time other people understood you as. Why that move? Why did you make that move? It's quite a spiritual, ancestral thing, you know. I think there was a point in, in my journey where galleries were ready to work with me. And every time I tried to make work for a gallery, I'd act literally fall sick. At the time, I didn't understand what was happening. And, and then I had to sit down and listen. I'm like, okay, what is the universe, you know? Because for me, it's very important to align yourself with your purpose. And so when that was happening, I was like, what does this mean? Why, why does my body become incapable? And I did take a six-month sabbatical. Like, I'm not going to make anything. I'm not going to curate. I'm not going to make anything. And having conversations with myself of, like, and my people. And, and so I was like, I know you, you. I've been guided here. I mean, I left a life that could have been lucrative because I was in property. And before all of this, I started marketing. And I was really good at what I did. But I was miserable and unhappy. And so I'm like, so you guys, literally the universe has guided me out of that. And so I need you to shed light for me. And then, then one day I just knew that I, and then I just stopped making work. And I think in many ways, my interest in, in, in anything I've done, I've always wanted to be in the background and create the mechanisms. And so and I feel like curating gives me that possibility to sit on the back seat and think and observe. And, and I guess it's quite interesting to, to curate when you've actually done work before, when you have the, the physical experience of putting your own body on the line. As the artist, you're making a different way, right? Um, so it's always interesting when I'm curating and like looking at people, I'm like, but be like, ah, they have to learn it themselves. <laughs> I enjoy having to think so broadly and then having to horn everything in again. Because I think when you're curating, your first idea is so broad. <laughs> and there's so many elements that require you to horn it in. And I like that. I like that kind of expansion, the freedom that represents and the liberation that represents. Particularly also because like in our collective lives as, as black queer women, there isn't much of liberation and freedom. And so I think... If we find the things that allows us to, to expand on a creative, on a cosmic, on an intellectual, on a spiritual and ancestral level, do them. And what drives you now to do the work that you do? Love for black people. Love for queer people. Love for myself. Loving myself enough to know that the way things are should not be just that simple love deep-seated love and love for earth you know yeah the earth doesn't belong to us the earth belongs to itself yet we think that we own the earth and so love for that as well love I 
Atelier podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode includes Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions and two songs by Urban Village, Ubaba and My Calling, which you are listening to right now. This episode also includes a clip from the film Staff Riding by Marco Casino. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to performance artist and photographer Dean Hutton. See you then, and thanks for listening.